Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous. Hello, I'm Mr. Movies of the Famous Film Twitter.com, and this is the Mr. Movies Podcast. the rich podcast um we uh we watched dr strange love or how i learned to stop ordering and love the bomb and we both were talking before we started recording that this like personally is in our top fives all time absolutely absolutely probably my favorite movie and um, i don't blame you this may be <laughs> the perfect satire of the u.s military industrial complex specifically like the mm-hmm. higher-ups Mostly showing mm-hmm. how close we've all come to destroying the world with nukes. How many mm-hmm. times? Um, have you heard the story about the submarine skipper who refused to arm the warheads because he was convinced that there was just a weird blip on the radar and it wasn't ICBMs? Have you heard that story? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, uh, no, I've heard ones like it, but please, if, yeah. if you oh, want to tell I, it. I, I ho- if I can't find it right away, I won't use the guy's name. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look up Russian submarine no-nukes launched. Um, so supposedly there was this, uh, like, undetected Soviet submarine. God damn it. Of course I wouldn't be able to find it. I should have looked this up before. But there was a, um, a Soviet uh, submarine that was out, like, undetected mm. in the Atlantic Ocean. And it was just, you know, hanging out, doing its normal spy stuff because it was the Cold War. And this one skipper aboard, like, the uh, the submarine, there apparently were, like, three keys that you had to turn to arm the nukes to launch the nukes in a retaliatory right, strike. Right, right. And two had primed their nuclear warheads. <laughs> and this one guy said, no, we need to wait. We need to make sure that this isn't mm-hmm. a, you know, what what if this is just a malfunction on the radar? And guess what, buddy? That's exactly what it was. Um, The most disappointing shit you'd ever hear. Um, And the reason why I wanted you on specifically to talk to this episode, one, I respect the shit out of you, and two... um, Thanks, man. You have a genuine fear of nukes, but not in like a normal, uh, you know, like, oh, I would not like to die from a nuclear blast kind of way. You know, you know, like a, <laughs> right, right, like, right. like a self-reliance thing that I like being alive kind of way. Yours goes, um, y- y- yours is a bit more thought out than that. And I wanted, to, uh, I just wanted to talk to you about that. So like what kicked it off and what started your fascination with literal like doomsday weapons? Um... I mean, I think I mean you're. I think you're right. It's it's definitely become almost like a, a pathology for me. Um, like it's a deep, deep paranoia that uh, if I start thinking about it, it's incredibly hard for me to stop thinking about it. And I think the thing that um that really set it off was when I was a little kid. Um, I, I read this uh, 
uh, manga comic book from uh, Japan, um, Barefoot Gen, um, which is like a sort of semi-autobiographical story about um, this young man, the author, who's writing in himself, um, although it's fictionalized, um, who grows up in wartime Hiroshima and is about like six or seven when the, the bomb goes off. Um, and so, you know, it, it shows his whole life growing up and then the bomb going off and then the aftermath. Most of the story is the aftermath of like what happens in this ruined city. Um, you know, all of his family dies or most of his family dies. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, it's just him and his mom and his little baby sister who was born the day that the bomb dropped. And so then the whole story is about this like six year old boy who suddenly like catapulted into like having to take care of his mom and his like little baby sister in the midst of just like the one of the most horrible war crimes and scenes you could imagine um and i I think i was about like six or seven when i read that so it obviously like i was like oh fuck like (laughs) fuck (laughs) this sucks (laughs) no um and uh and and i think you know like from there like um you know that that spurned a, a lot of interest for me particularly like being interested in history in general and thinking about, like, well, how did this happen? Like, how did it come to this? That's such, that, like, a, mankind would do this, to, you know, to to themselves or to each other. Um, and, yeah, and so since ever since then, I, um, I, I've just thought about it, uh, of, I don't know, like, every day, <laughs> like, just looking out the window, just, like, imagining mushroom clouds. And, and then part of that, um, and we were talking a little bit about this before the, uh, we started recording, but, like, um... You know, once once you have that fixation, you start to accumulate and and seek out like more stuff to scare you, right? So like I, I um, as I got older, I would just like read anything I could find about it, or like watch any movie or documentary show on the History Channel, whatever that was about like nuclear weapons, um, the Cold War, and uh, and of course, you know that eventually led me to f- discovering Doctor Strangelove. Um, and I have a strange love. <laughs> Smooth transition straight into. The... <laughs> Thanks. I was I was working that up in God, my head. I was it's like, damn, that's so good. good. Uh, this, <laughs> I, I guess we may as well kick it off now. This is Doctor Strange Love, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. movie opens up saying explicitly in text which i imagine this had to have been put out or they wouldn't have released this film they would have just detained kubrick or you know like made him like a (laughs) siberian refugee it says that it is the stated position of the u.s air force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film Furthermore, it should be noted that none of the character portray none of the characters portrayed in this film are meant to represent any real persons living or dead, which should calm you down a bit, right? You think, "Oh, I'm going to be going into a satire. This is going to be a comedy. This is going to this is a thinking man's comedy." You know, um <laughs> no, uh that's not true whatsoever. Uh I was in the car with my wife. This may have been like 3 or 4 years ago, and it was like the 60th anniversary, the 55th anniversary of Doctor strange love you know it's it's like one of these uh bullshit anniversaries and i'm listening mm. to it and i remember it comes on and it's like you know like we're gonna do a bit of a talk to about, about dr strange love 
And I was just like, shut the fuck up and like turned up the radio <laughs> and I'm listening to it. And they had these two high ranking Pentagon officials that refused to go by name. And they said, you know, they went into this movie. They heard that there was going to be a grand satire about the Pentagon in the 1950s, you know, specifically Harry mm. Truman's Pentagon. And they said they went into it knowing that it'd be a satire, but they walked out thinking, damn, that may as well have been a documentary. How does that make you uh, yeah, feel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, it makes sense. Um, uh, you know, I think in part, like the, one of the stylistic flares of the movie is that even though it is ostensibly, you know, it's, it's satire. And, um, a lot of that comes through like these kind of weird muted jokes or the names of characters, which are all sort of absurd and stuff. Um, the, the you know the the situation is so like methodical and so, like the logic of it it seems like real it do, it really does seem like this is the way that this conversation would play out um you know whether it's like uh weird interpersonal stuff that comes to the surface or like the bureauc- bureaucracy of it all but you know instead of it just being like making a decision about pu- you know pushing papers across a desk or whatever it's about like you're deciding like whether or not we should like destroy the entire planet <laughs> um um but yeah that makes sense that totally makes sense man i couldn't tell like i heard that and what was funny was like the life left me because you remember <laughs> when trump got uh inaugurated and you know that that mm. dumb shit we do the atomic clock and, you know, they're yes, like, the clock yes, yeah, is yeah, yeah, 30 yeah. seconds closer to midnight. I remember <laughs> Tr- Trump right. got inaugurated. And I, I, perfectly clear, if you haven't picked it up, we both hate the dude. <laughs> we, um, I'm going to edit out whatever you say after the Shane, but we hate the dude. <laughs> and I just remember uh, when, when they brought up the atomic clock and they were like, you know, like it's now 30 seconds closer to midnight or whatever. And midnight being the uh humanity's ending the nukes are in the air you know say goodbye Mm. to your loved ones it's about to hurt real bad for a few seconds and i just remember thinking like no no there's no way this is worse than it was at the height of the cold war Mm. you know the the Mm -hmm. height of the cold war specifically because i had seen this movie i just remember being like how many times were there bad radar signals that it was one guy who said, no, let's wait it out. Right, right, right. How many of those? Right. So, like, when, when I remember when I got news of that, I just I was just like, yeah, come on, guys. Come on. <laughs> we are just as in danger as we would be under any other president. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 not to be too tangential, but I, I, it made me think. I do have a fun Trump nuke anecdote. Hit me. Really quick. No, no. Though. Any nuke um, antidote or a- antidote, okay. anecdote is uh, welcome <laughs> in this podcast episode. It's just thematically appropriate. So he, uh, when, you know, when he, um, uh, first became president and he took office and, and Mattis was, uh, the defense secretary, right? Um, he, like, you know, I, I guess they, you know, they do briefings, um, uh, you know, to, to sort of, inform the incoming president of whatever the, all the various high level secrets and plans and stuff going on. And they had some thing about like the America's nuclear arsenal. That was part of like a larger presentation on the Pentagon. And because like Trump doesn't read, they couldn't like put it in like a brief. They had to like literally present it to him in pictures. Um, and so, they, you know, they, they showed him like, I guess like a slideshow that they had made, like detailing information about America's nuclear arsenal. And they showed one of the slides was like number of warheads, over time and of course 
Um, when you look at that, the number of warheads peaked in like the sixties and seventies. Makes um, sense. Yeah. With some, yeah, with something around like sixty thousand oh, individual cool. nuclear warheads. V- very good. Um, and then you know there were like a few arms treaties and things that then happened in the seventies and eighties, and then of course after the Cold War, both uh, the United States and Russia. Um, you know, uh, limited their arsenals and brought them down. And so now both are standing around like 2,000 active warheads. Um, and, and sort of the point that they were, try- I, I, they were trying to make in this um, presentation to him was like, you know, uh, the, the weapons are also like much more powerful now. So like the, the actual like uh, explosive power is still like unbelievably high. Um, but it's just, you know, we have like fewer of the actual weapons. And Trump's response was like, no, we have to go back up to that number. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, and and his reasoning was like, I need to be the president who had the most nuclear weapons. <laughs> and this is the one I forget. I forget who, who it was, but, you know, what, one of the people in, in, in his circle or whatever. This is the famous line where he called him a fucking idiot afterwards. Oh, <laughs> under yeah. His breath. Um, anyway, sorry, not, to, not, not as a tangent. But it, sh- it shows, the, again, the logic of, like, how people who are in the positions of power relate to these things. And in their minds, it's like, I want the big booms, the big explosions. I want as many of them as possible, which is, again, sort of a, an overlying theme to this movie. Absolutely. And I'm really happy that you brought that up because at the end of this movie or at the end of our discussion of this movie, I have a book that I'm going to recommend that everybody read that essentially goes over this. It's my all-time favorite Mm. novel. Uh, It's a Hugo Award-winning novel, if that's uh, any selling point for anybody listening. Uh, I Mm. can't wait to bring up the premise of the book to you, and I I guarantee you, Mm. you've already read it. But um, Mm. genuinely enjoy it. But uh, the movie truly opens up. Uh, talking about how U.S. defense officials believe that the Soviets had built the ultimate doomsday device and that they were on pins and needles fearing what it could be used for or who it was aimed at, which kicks off a montage that looks straight out of a 1950s pro-military recruitment ad. You know, it largely Mm -hmm. depicts the U.S. as being technologically advanced, showing planes owned by the U.S. Air Force refueling in midair, all set to this wonderful string intro, which was really typical of media from this time. Like, it's really heavily mm. satirized now. You know how movies will do things that, like, they'll fade back to the 1950s, and the female lead will have her hair wrapped up and a big dress on, and the audio's all tinny. But it comes from somewhere, and seeing it laid on top of war toys, to me, was really funny. You know, it speaks to Kubrick's mm-hmm. satire of America being great when they were nuking, I guess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to bring this up, uh, you know, just before this, the, um, that thought about the Soviets making the ultimate doomsday weapon, uh, that really happened. Uh, Shane, mm-hmm. have you ever read into the Tsar Bomba? Yes. Yes. The scariest piece of shit ever created. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah. the Tsar Bomba, for those who don't know, the Tsar Bomba was the Soviet Union's biggest, most baddest weapon ever. It was this nuke it was a hydrogen bomb specifically the a bomb split uranium 235 if i remember right which decays down to plutonium 239 i think that's what it does um Mm -hmm. after you know like that is a very strong bomb we saw what it did to hiroshima and nagasaki but 
we're talking Sar Bomba, which was a what was it, a fifty megaton bomb? Or fifty yes, megaton yeah. bomb? The the one they tested was fifty megatons, but I think that theoretically it could go up to a hundred megatons. Yes. The um, explosion yeah. was so big. It detonated at um atmosphere zero, which means contact with the ground, and the explosion went three miles high and almost destroyed <laughs> the plane that dropped it from three miles <laughs> up in the air. <laughs> this is a thing that we made as humans. And this mm-hmm. is just the one that they tested. There's no telling how many of these still exist in what is now the Russian Federation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This cuts to two caricatures of military personnel. You know, one being a hard ass, your typical long crew cut cigarette smoking asshole. And a man who looks straight out of Austin Powers, speaking in that high <laughs> American accent like a radio play from the 1930s. And it's here <laughs> that they announce that they are committing to wing attack plan R. You know, whatever that is. This cuts to a montage of a swarm of B-52s and how they are our only defense against a preliminary nuclear strike against the U.S. And what's meant to calm our nerves is that they can deliver a nuclear strike up to, what was it, 50 times stronger than all the bombs dropped in World War II in one go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mutually mm-hmm. assured destruction, baby. We love it. I was when they're when they're setting that up in the when they, when they when they're in the B fifty twos. I made a note of this when I was watching it again last night. Is that they have two bombs, and the first one is a thirty megaton nuclear bomb, <laughs> and then as a backup in case the first one doesn't go off, they have a twenty megaton nuclear bomb, <laughs> and just the idea of like, oh, you need that backup just in case. Um, to me is yeah amusing. Yeah, just in case yeah. the biggest strongest bomb that will level like what like a hundred square <laughs> miles doesn't go off, you right. can do one that'll also right. do eighty square miles. <laughs> Shit's fucking scary. Aboard one of these 10,000 B-52s, I can't count, we get a real honest look at U.S. soldiers. That was probably more common than the stereotypical war hero one that we're pitched to constantly from time to time. Uh, Just a group of dudes who, like, if they aren't eating, they're looking at porn. Uh, You know, one of the (laughs) fellas. But more importantly, none of them want to go through with Plan R. They're all dumbfounded by getting the go code to literally drop a nuclear warhead, a preliminary strike on the Soviet Union, mind you. And to signify this, the pilot of the plane, the only person who seems to be on board with his plan, going far enough mm-hmm. to literally feel excited about it, pulling out a tactical cowboy hat that he kept in an <laughs> under the plane um, secure storage area. Uh, gives a heartfelt speech about how excited everyone should be for their personal commendations they're about to receive for ending the world. (laughs) A funny bit of wording here, too, is that no matter your race or creed is a thing that he says. You know, it's it's like something like that. It's a stark contrast for how the U.S. approached how they handled GI bills post-World War II. Like, black soldiers were never offered the same benefits as white Mm -hmm. soldiers, a lot of them just Mm -hmm. being denied outright, and were largely left to stay in the now-rotting urban cores as the white diaspora left for the suburbs, holding to all the benefits while black people were left completely behind. Which I think, anybody watching this movie, this probably was a great comedic line. I imagine. Because now we, mm-hmm. we just know it and we're depressed by it. But at the time, they'd be like, ha, oh, that's funny. No race or creed. Right. That's the right. opposite of 
you see... If I, if, to quickly jump in, since you brought him up, the, the pilot of the plane, is the character's name is Major Kong. Oh, yeah. In keeping with the, the <laughs> silly names of, of a number of these characters, is played by Slim Pickens, who was like a cowboy TV actor. <laughs> um, and uh, and the, one of the reasons why his performance is so great, because he, he has this whole, like, doohickey, like, hee-haw kind of attitude um, and performance. Um, they didn't tell him that it was a comedy film. Really? <laughs> Uh, and so he he was told to just play all of his lines like fully straight. So when you're watching the movie now, I mean, you watch it and it's so ridiculous because he's just like a hokey TV cowboy guy, but he plays it to the T and, and, and it's so funny because again, when you realize like he he's really taking it seriously, both the character is taking the situation like super seriously, but also, you know, that actor is and, and, it, and it just works so well. So funny. This thing turns out to be half as important as I figured it just might be. I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Now let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. There's a scene after this that shows the mentality behind McCarthyism really, really well. After wing attack plan R has been called in, a commanding officer literally encourages conspiracy and distrust amongst anyone who looks remotely similar to you, even if they share your uniform. His words, not mine. They're talking about stopping any and all people from entering the base and interfering with this plan, because the goddamn Ruskies could be any one of yous, and to, I can <laughs> prove it with statistics and bone structure. Uh, <laughs> like earlier, not only did the soldiers believe that this was a test from higher-ups, even the higher-ups believe that this is a test from the Pentagon. And it's so funny seeing that this, which probably really happened a few times more than we want to admit, mm -hmm. literally wasn't anything anyone wanted to do. Only one rogue mm -hmm. pilot believes in the noble cause of destroying the world 700 times over and causing a nuclear winter so bad that it outshines the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. The rest of them, the uh, normal people, I guess you could call them, uh, mm -hmm. all I know is that this Cold War, this defense theater was exactly that. It was all make-believe. We both knew we could end the world. It's just that neither of us wanted to be responsible for the demise of humanity. I haven't read up enough on Kubrick's opinions about McCarthyism. I can imagine he hated mm. it. Uh, not yeah, not necessarily because he was a communist sympathizer or anything. I just imagine him being a free speech warrior type. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, he outlines how insane McCarthy McCarthyism is, in his mind at least, with a scene between the commanding officer... He also... Just quickly, um, I mean, one other demonstration of maybe Kubrick's attitude about McCarthyism is he, he did the film Spartacus... Um, uh, a few years before this, in the 50s, a sword and sandal epic, um, and uh, that was written by Dalton Trumbo, but he had to ghostwrite it, because at the time, he was he was part of, you know, the blacklist that was, that HUAC, um, uh, had, you know, forbidden from, you know, working in Hollywood. No shit. Um, it, it, literally, as a result of McCarthyism. And, and Kubrick, like, sought out this script and wanted to make it, um, which was written as a kind of weird, like, left-wing propaganda movie. <laughs> um, it explicitly uh, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, again, I, I think you're right on the money where he himself was probably more of, like, a 
free speech type guy or whatever than than being a left-wing sympathizer but um he pins me as like a stone statue avatar kind of twitter guy that like <laughs> right you know right, like, right, like right. carrie will say something like oh you know sometimes salads are good in the winter and he'd be like me thinks you need to peruse another form of argument <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean absolutely if he was alive today he would probably be like on some cancel culture thing oh my god like, yeah <laughs> but anyway <laughs> what i was doing with shelly duvall was merely method directing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah he outlines how insane mccarthyism is uh like in his mind at least with a scene between the commanding officer of the military base and a character from a wes anderson movie uh, specifically with his <laughs> line read that said um specifically <clears throat> i can no longer sit back and allow Communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. There it is. <laughs> and he says, how is. many times do you think he says bodily fluids throughout this movie? Oh, at least like three or four times. It's his main, it's, his, it's, it's the obvious like kind of break and reveal of that character that the motivating force for him is like a deep psychosis like he's totally he's totally fucking insane um yeah with the, with this vast conspiracy thing um and i've i've a, a bunch i want i want to talk about specifically with the fluid thing but i'll wait maybe till when, when, after we've gotten through the rest of the movie hell yeah such a good line this this one oh holy shit i almost did the stone statue avi way of talking such a good line, me thinks. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a. <laughs> I I think this is a great line because it may as well be how they thought about it. Like, how many people did McCarthy catch with like tens of millions, if not billions, of dollars of Pentagon funding? It was a husband mm. and a wife, if I'm pretty sure. That's like all that he ever caught. Like that was mm. it. So he's right. Mm -hmm. It may as well have been an airborne pathogen you're scared of because it seems that they're pretty pretty hard to find mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this cuts to the most popular scene in the movie and one of the most popular moments in film history the war room scene between all the joint chiefs of staff mm. the president and one general buck turgidson <laughs> one of my <laughs> do you remember that meme where it was like a japanese baseball game and they were like they had to like make up american names and all the names were like bo stumpley and like <laughs> Buck Turgidson feels like it. Would. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so good. Played by George C. Scott, of course, who's a fantastic dramatic actor. And like, and again, it's it's sort of the, you know, what makes the comedy work in this movie is that it's never like outright, you know, like there's a few kind of like slapsticky gags in there, but for the most part, it's just like, you know, really good actors playing this totally straight. Um, and, and he does it so well, this, this character. So I heard uh, that so the good. actor who played him, apparently Kubrick did mm -hmm. some funny business with him and told him that they were just rehearsing takes with him. So he, mm -hmm. so he would do all the takes like this, where you're like mm -hmm. really overacting because he was like, oh no, overact. And then you'll be able to do it at the level you need to do. And Kubrick was mm -hmm. secretly filming him for a lot of these scenes. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, deeply unhappy that Kubrick did that because it portrayed him as this mm. hokey, stupid actor. But I, right. I gotta disagree. I'm sorry. It's the best performance in the whole movie. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's, it's really, it's interesting because obviously 
you know, the um, the the person who you usually think of in terms of acting in this movie is Peter Sellers because he plays three different parts. Yes, um, incredible. All of, all of which he which he nails and are fantastic. Um, but uh, you know, every time I go back and watch it, you really realize like how much. Um, uh, Buck Turgidson is really like the kind of focal point of the movie. Sorry. Um, and, and no, but it's so, it's so good. I mean, in this scene, I don't know if you were going to, um, mention this detail, but like, um, I, I, I jotted this down when I was watching it again last night, again, in terms of like the subtle, um, just hidden satire bits in, in, in the movie, you know, they're all sitting around at the table and, and where Buck Turgidson is sitting, he's, he's got like a bunch of binders underneath him. And um, and he's got his like arms crossed over the binders, and so towards the camera, what we can see is the the like uh, on the one of the the ends of the binders, like the you know the name of the report or whatever is World Death, uh, no World Targets and Mega Deaths. Jesus, <laughs> which which you know would imply like you know you're talking about like millions, <laughs> yeah, tar- yeah, million millions of people's dead, and it's just like a you know it's not. Nobody ever reads that aloud or whatever. It's just that's just part of this guy's reality is that he's got a stack of papers underneath him that are like basically like world genocide. How to do it? What are the best ways? Um, <laughs> Will it be painful? Do they deserve the pain? <laughs> yeah, this shit's fucking evil. And speaking of evil, this war room is massive and intentionally looks evil. Uh, comparing this mm-hmm. war room to an episode that I just did for the Patreon on the hunt for Red October and what an actual war room probably looks like, it'd be like a boring conference room with expensive office chairs. But this, he has them looking like a cabal of Star Wars villains. There's like 60 people mm-hmm. sitting in a perfectly round mm-hmm. table with a perfectly round overhead light above with an illuminated map behind them showing every single possible place they could strike within the Soviet Union. And I do want to mm-hmm. po- point this out right now. I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm defending the Soviet Union a lot, just like I'm going to sound like I'm defending the Soviet Union a lot for the hunt for Red October. I am not a Soviet Union defender. I am. I, I don't feel qualified to my my t shirt my t shirt that says I am not a Soviet Union defender is raising more questions than I feel a lot more qualified to talk about American war crime uh, like, like abuses mm. and or mm. like the potential for them than I do for the Soviet Union's crimes against mm. humanity, whatever they may be, because you don't really get taught them here in America, weirdly, except for a very general sense of. Stalin had a ray gun if he pointed it at you. <laughs> the number of uh, dead Soviets would go up by 10 million. But, like, that, 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 that I just want to get that clear. Not a defender of the Soviet Union. Just, <laughs> just really need you guys to believe me. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I, it's going to come off like I'm going to say, like, oh, the Soviet Union did nothing wrong. No, this movie doesn't show you what the Soviet Union does until the very end. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Um, it's here that we get to finally learn what Plan R was, uh, which is an emergency war plan, which is a nefariously worded order that says that if a normal chain of command is interrupted, literally any way interrupted, they don't pick up a phone call, a lower-ranking officer can do whatever he wants and just call a nuclear strike. Which I wouldn't be surprised if this existed. Like, hey, Shane, mm-hmm. in these nuclear silos out in, like, South Dakota... What do you think the mm-hmm. password to arm the nuclear warheads was until very, very recently? <laughs> I want you to guess. The password. Password admin. <laughs> it was eight zeros in a row. 
Because the oh, Pentagon believe man. that if you were too stressed to remember a complicated code because nukes are hitting all around you, you just want to hit the zero as many times as you can to do a retaliatory strike oh, man. of all nukes <laughs> in your silo. This was 40 years ago. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> That's so bad, dude. <laughs> That's so bad. My goal going into this was to stress you out, and I feel like oh, I'm, it's working. I feel like it's, I'm doing my it's job. It's starting to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Did you know that even to the modern day, they have these giant floppy disks that you have to plug in to do the code? <laughs> I'm dead serious. Uh, <laughs> They're floppy disks the size of charcuterie boards. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that's one of the things, too, that um, when you watch this movie, uh, you know, because the movie came out, what, like, 63 or 64? 64, yeah. And, and like, and you look at, like, you know, the degree of technology, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of highly technical talk, both in the war room scenes and then on the plane as well, um, about, like, how all this technology works, right? And, you know, when I was watching it with Carrie, you know, I I was thinking, like, and this is what I often think about in terms of, you know, like, the horror of nuclear war. Like, think about, like, today, right? Like, you're sitting in front of a computer or you have your phone in your pocket, right? Think about, like, how much that doesn't fucking work most of the time. Oh, yeah. Right? And, like, like how, how, you know, the updates are weird and it's like, you know, you can't get the right goddamn – maybe I sound like a boomer here or whatever. (laughs) But, like, you can't can't get any of that to work. Now imagine, like, a computer – that has like one millionth the processing power yeah, of that. Yeah. <laughs> that that is and and that's in charge of like whether or not we destroy the entire world. Because that's what they were doing in like the you know, the 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 fifties and sixties and stuff, you know, it was it was all um hooked up to various different kinds of computers that would run on like magnetic tape. Yeah. <laughs> you think like, oh fuck, dude, that sucks. Like literally like a that. magnet being in the same room as it could literally change <laughs> right, the bits right. and, and turn no into yes on the do you want to launch right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Oh, and I know what you're thinking. Well, they've updated that since, right, Shane? Nope. Well, the special hmm. that I saw was a nuclear silo in South Dakota, I believe. And this guy was like, nope, here's the floppy disk that you used to arm the nukes. And he's just holding it. And then he shoves it into the computer. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a DVD menu when you, when you put in the fucking nuke code thing. <laughs> One of those DVD menus that has like a secret input that you have to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a puzzle that you have to solve just with a, like a 20-year-old, a you know, uh, uh, a TV remote. Yeah. A DVD of Cool Runnings comes on and you have to get <laughs> each of the actors by, by their age. And then there you go, buddy. Apocalypse. This whole yeah. scene is so fucking funny because it shows who actually runs the country. And I know that that's a very much like 14-year-old edgelord way of thinking of things. But I mean, mm-hmm. you have to ask if those 14-year-old edgelords are right, which is the Pentagon. The Pentagon runs a country. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the president. Mm-hmm. I'm talking like... The Pentagon, our intelligence agencies, Mm. have been running the show since World War II. And Mm -hmm. the president, who is a seemingly sharp guy, gets outwitted and basically gave the keys to an itchy, trigger-fingered U.S. military with little to no resistance. They talk Mm -hmm. about General Ripper, the guy who talked about body fluids earlier, uh, literally called the nuclear strike because he's a McCarthyist who views the Soviets as a literal plague that need to be eradicated or we will all die. Yes, he's a, what what, what are the words? It's like a millenarianist? Millenarian? Yeah, he's like a millennial. He's a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. Ap- apocalyptic sort of th- vision of yeah. the world. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did this really cool uh, seminar when I was getting my degree in history, which is very useful with my IT job. And, like, <laughs> my, one of the seminars I have to take, you have to take two seminars to get your history degree. One of them was the history mm-hmm. of our perceptions of the apocalypse and how there's all these... Oh, that's cool. Mi- they call them, like, millenarianists or millenarians. Yeah, 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 yeah. And his example, my professor's example, was like, oh, that's ISIS. And I'm like, um, you could look a bit closer to home. There's a right, few, right, right, yeah. There's a yeah. few people in our government name things like, I don't know, Ted Cruz, that genuinely believe that they are <laughs> right, put on this right. earth to bring forth the rapture, you know? Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. Holy shit. I think also the point the point you were making ju- uh, a minute ago about um, the, uh, the, the president obviously not being in control, I think it's, it's a really excellently put um, point and it's made so obvious too just by like the geography of that room because it's like this huge table with like I don't know maybe about like 70 people sitting around it and the president on one end who's again played by Peter Sellers uh, and the president's name too is Merkin Muffley which is another great (laughs) another great just like little throwaway (laughs) joke line but he's totally he's totally like feckless right and and that's kind of the point is that because, uh, you know, in the first uh, kind of fo- uh, uh, exchange that he has with Turgidson, where Turgidson is like, explaining this is the scenario we're in um, that uh, General Ripper has put us in, like, the president keeps saying, like, how could this have happened, basically? And Turgidson keeps going, like, well, Mr. President, you actually, you know, if you don't recall, but uh, that's p- been part of the process for quite a long time. And it gives and it gives the, the, the perception, which I think is an accurate one in the way that you put it out, which is that, like... It really doesn't matter who the fuck the president is. I think I think the character of Merkin Muffley in the, in this film is is supposed to be sort of like a you know again like a feckless liberal type yeah, like he's like he doesn't he he, he doesn't wimp. want the war to happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's a good way. He's very wimpish. Um and and he's just surrounded by all these like meat-headed like killers yeah, yeah. who are ready to end the fucking world. Yeah, like, like a rabid dog. What it is is it's like it's like a uh, uh, like an arena full of pit bulls. And yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just like this savory piece of meat. <laughs> it's just dangling. Well, perhaps you're um Forgetting the provisions of Plan R, sir. Plan R? Plan R is an emergency war plan in which a lower echelon commander may order nuclear retaliation after a sneak attack if the normal chain of command has been disrupted. You uh, approved it, sir, you must remember. Surely you must recall, sir, when Senator Buford made that big hassle about our deterrent lacking credibility. The idea was for Plan R to be a sort of uh, retaliatory safeguard. This conversation that they have goes from stressful to absolutely panic-inducing, talking about the nuclear strike that the U.S. is about to conduct on the Soviet Union and how in 15 minutes their planes will be in radar range of the Soviets and the Soviets will retaliate with air quotes, all they've got, and how they shouldn't Mm. panic because if they launch a coordinated attack preeminently, mind you, none of this has happened yet, if they launch a coordinated nuclear strike right behind these planes, they can neutralize any sort of threat up to 90% of strike back capabilities, all with an air quotes, I'm, I'm like telling you, an acceptable amount of civilian casualties from an uncoordinated attack from the Ruskies. Shane, I've got to ask, how did this scene make you feel? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 deeply frightening and terrifying. I think it's 
it's also, you know, the the way that that plan is laid out, like, there is, like, this certain kind of military logic to it, which is this idea of, like, well, you know, since we probably can't call these guys back, we might as well, like, fully commit. And there's a line where then, uh, when Turgeson is, like, making the argument, and, and he's arguing with the president about whether or not to do it, and he says, like... Look, look, there's two post-war environments. One where you got 150 million people killed, one where you got 20 million people killed. Jesus and, Christ. And, and and he's trying to, like, balance that, right? As if, like, you know, we should take the option that, that means less killed. Um, but it still means, like, killing 20 million people, like, hypothetically. Yes. And and it's so... And, and it's said, you know, almost with, like... I mean, because Turgeson kind of goes back and forth in his position on this in the film. But at this moment, he's like... Let's go. We might as well. We have to fully commit now. We have to. We have to fucking. In fact, at one point he says, like, we actually conducted an unofficial study in case a specific event happened. And that unofficial study said if this happened and we took these measures, we'd actually be okay. Again, (sighs) in killing 20 million people. Yeah, 20 million people as an acceptable amount of casualties because I'm not included. Mm. Right? Because, like, there's a taboo of, like, war where you just don't strike the palace that the rulers live in. Right, right, right. So he's going to be fine. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murder since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. The president gets all mad because he personally doesn't want to be the new Hitler. Not that it's (laughs) wrong to kill innocent people or anything. It's just that he doesn't want to be the bloodiest war criminal in human history. And all of a sudden, this gets cut by news that the Russian ambassador's here to speak with the president. And General Turgidson goes, but if he's here, he'll see the big map. (laughs) (laughs) Which is done with this childlike sense of innocence. Like, he was the only person who thought about it. Yeah, yeah. He he, he, he grips the binders and pulls them close to him when he does. It's so good. My Yu-Gi-Oh cards. (laughs) (laughs) We can't hide that, you know? We can't hide the map, it's too big. And obviously the whole point is to show their military might. Is that the Russian ambassador you're talking about? Yes, it is, General. Uh, am I to understand the Russian ambassador is to be admitted to entrance to the, the war room? That is correct. He is here on my orders. I, I don't know exactly how to put this, sir, but are you aware of what a serious breach of security that would be? I mean, you'll see everything. you You'll see the big board. But you were talking about this earlier. Apparently, like, people went in thinking that the big map was a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the as you were saying, you know, this is probably the most famous image from the movie, with maybe the exception of um, the, the, the bomb riding one. Yeah, the, the cowboy. But just the image... The image of the um, the war room and everybody sitting around in, in in this huge space, you know, across this massive table with these giant maps on the wall. Um, and... Um, uh, it, you know, it, be, it lodged itself so firmly in the uh, public consciousness that when um, President Reagan uh, was inaugurated and, uh, you know, became president, um, one of the first things he did is he, like, turned to his chief of staff or whatever, and he was like, all right, well, uh, you know, take me to the war room in the Pentagon. It's it's time to see. And they're like, what what are you talking about, Mr. President? And he's like, you know, the war room with the big table and the big board. I, I want to go see it. They're Jesus like, that doesn't fucking exist. Christ. And he's like, no, it was in Dr. Strangelove, the big thing. <laughs> and they were like, sir, that was a movie. 
<laughs> like this doesn't exist. Oh um, my god! But it seems, it, but it seems plausible enough that it would. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, this literally looks yeah. like like the Pentagon would have a room this evil. This this yeah, right, this would right, be this right. would be in the dome part. You know, <laughs> I don't even know. Pentagon shaped like a Pentagon. There's no dome there, but you know what I mean. This leads to the Russian ambassador showing up. You know, this late in life Orson Welles looking motherfucker, and immediately gets into a fight with General Turgidson. Which kicks off this all-time great line read of, like, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Which is just, like, <laughs> Kubrick just trying to be a comedian. But, like, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. What is going on here? I demand an explanation. This clumsy fool tried to plant that ridiculous camera on me. Yeah, you bet your sweets, Mr. Commie. Look at this, Mr. President. This lousy commie rat was taking pictures with this thing of the big boy. Yeah, it's a great line. The fight was over a hidden camera, and both the U.S. and the Soviet Union deny either owning, you know, the camera or planning the camera on each other, which is a wonderful, perfect summation of the paranoia both countries had and just how bad we were at spying on each other. This leads us to a conversation between the president of the Soviet Union and the president of the United States. And this call is really funny. It uh, it feels mm. like a breakup between high school sweethearts. <laughs> like, of course yeah, I like yeah. talking to you. I don't only call whenever <laughs> there's bad news, I swear. <laughs> Which honestly is probably what it was like talking to Khrushchev. After yeah. this painful conversation, like a conversation you'd have with someone you hadn't seen since middle school and you're trying to remember if you were ever friends, we get news of a doomsday device. A device that would kill all life on Earth. We, you and I, call this uh, strategically placed nuclear warheads under Earth's surface that uh, conspiracy theorists believe in and I uh, tend to lean more towards that existing than not existing. But to them, it's a mythical device that only seen on the big silver screen. And... The scene that juxtaposes this, showing us the panic at the high and low levels, shows that the general that called in wing attack plan R is one of those fluoride-in-the-water brain control guys. And mm -hmm. had this movie been made today, the general would have just been like a QAnon guy. Right, <laughs> You right, know, like right. one of those police chiefs in Long Island. I, I would say, too, you know, the thing where he's, uh, you know, his whole fixation on the fluoridation of water and it being this communist plot and stuff, um, that was like a real uh, conspiracy theory at the time. No shit. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was because that was around the time that fluoridation um, was you know introduced as a way to you know make sure that water was uh, sanitized and stuff. And there was a real belief. It was sort of like a John Birch Society kind of thing, you know, like a, a really kooky conspiracy shit. But the, there was a belief that it was it was it was in fact a Soviet plot to like I don't know you know weaken people. Um, so obviously it's taken to an extreme in this film, but it's. Uh, as absurd as it sounds, it was, like, an actual belief of, like, the, you know, extreme right during that time. That's so crazy. Like, the we were literally just trying to have, like, poor people's teeth stop falling out. Right, right. That was it. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. It's cool to know that it's never going to get better and conspiracy theories <laughs> just won't ever go away. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great that... Q, I mean, QAnon is barely a step above that, right? I actually just posted one. It was a picture of his face, and I said, when she saps and impurifies all your precious bodily <laughs> fluids, but she's still sucking. <laughs> I mean, that was that was another point that I thought, because, you know, he makes the... um. The, 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 he says at, at, at some point, 
now or maybe later in the film, um, uh, the you know uh, the the British officer is also played by uh, a Peter Sellers who's like trying to talk him down out of this insanity. Yeah. Um, uh, is like asking him like when did you first become aware of this and 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 he says it's um you know through the physical act of love and afterwards oh. afterwards I became fatigued <laughs> and I had a, a profound sense of loss <laughs> and luckily I interpreted these feelings correctly and so ever since then I have never. Uh, basically had sex again because I don't want women to like sap my my bodily fluids. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, now we would call it like vol cell or whatever. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> he's absolutely like, a vol cell. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, I don't, I don't masturbate. I don't have sex because I don't want to deprive myself of my essence. Um, but it, yeah, it just goes further into the the whole like sexual pathology that's at play with this guy. Shane, have you ever busted a nut so hard you gave yourself brain damage? <laughs> <laughs> favorite part about this movie is that the title we don't get a title drop into until like 50 minutes into this movie yes at the yes. 50 minute mark 50 we finally get to meet dr strangelove one of these mm-hmm. nuclear arms geniuses that tries to say that the doomsday machines aren't necessarily a commies only kind of thing and apparently mm-hmm. any nuclear power of any size can make one. Oh man i feel mm-hmm. so much better now Anyone can create a device that can kill all life on Earth. And the part Mm -hmm. of this that I took to heart is the fact that they made Dr. Strangelove a German who Mm. immigrated after the war. Good thing this is a work of fiction, right, Shane? Good thing this didn't happen in real life, right, Shane? That's that's right. That's right. Totally fictional. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I there's like a lot I want to say about the the strange love character and what he represents, and I think it's really, um, like as you point out, it's 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 very uh, telling that he doesn't show up until you know basically once most of the plot of the movie is through. Yeah, he shows up sort of at the moment where you're kind of already like the the clock is ticking, right? Like there's like the t- the the time to do anything about this is sort of diminishing. Um, and and I and again I'll I'll save it for the very end to kind of talk about why he's is so um, important. But as you point out, right? I mean, it's he's very clearly he's a Nazi or a former Nazi yes. who's now working for the Pentagon. Um, you know, he's based off of a, a number of figures, um, and I'll get into some of those maybe later. But like, uh, yeah, he's you know he's supposed to be this like hyper weapon scientist, and it's again it's played by Peter Sellers. He's just got a wonderful affect, this insane accent, this like robotic arm that goes out of control. Um, it's it's just it's 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 wonderful. It's wonderfully psychotic. Was that a reference to Stalin's right hand? I, I think from what I remember in terms of um, the like sort of production notes of the movie, um, he, he sellers like kept trying to like add stuff into the movie. Some of it ended up getting cut and stuff. Um, but uh, Kubrick let him keep this one idea where it was his addition that like uh, uh, Strange Love's right hand was like a robotic arm that sort of goes out of control at the end of the movie. And he, on it, he's wearing like a, you know, like a black leather glove. Yeah. And apparently the place that he got those gloves is that Kubrick himself would wear these black leather gloves on set and adjust lights. You know, because he was like a crazy perfectionist. And oh yeah, wouldn't let his like gaffer and shit do do the work for him. <laughs> so at one point, like Sellers like stole one of his gloves. <laughs> And put it on and started doing this, like, Nazi ar- robot arm bit. And <laughs> they thought it was great, and so they, they let him keep it in. God, that's that's so funny. Because uh, I, I pictured this as being, like, li- li- like, literally, we were hiring, like, literal, like, non-humans to do all the rocket mm-hmm. technology. And, like, whenever I say non-humans, yes, all Nazis are not humans. Cut that. But, like, they actually just beat that out. <laughs> but, like, um, but, but, but to me, it was like, like, he was like literally robotic because he had no humanity to him. Right, 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 right. You know, the right, robotic yes. arm was trying to kill whatever was left that was human on him because of the depraved stuff that he did as a literal Nazi. And if I remember right, mm. this is Operation Paperclip, right? What, wasn't that what paperclip yeah, was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I guess I'll just say it now. But um, Operation Paperclip was a, um, a an army intelligence um, operation that was co- conducted by the United States after um, and towards the end of the the Second World War, which was basically to recruit the uh, sort of top Nazi scientists, engineers, technicians, whatever anybody who had worked in their you know a high end weapons program. Um, and part of the reasoning was like looking forward to the Cold War. Um, and anticipating that, you know, we were going to need an edge on the Soviets because, you know, simultaneously as the Soviet Union was um, conquering the eastern half of the Nazi empire, they were also, like, capturing these high-level scientists and stuff, um, forcing them to work on now their projects. And, like, uh, the, the, the main guy that uh, Strangelove was uh, based on, um, one of the more famous grabs was uh, Werner von Braun. Yes, who was the um uh the he's sort of now known. He's got kind of like a very sanitized image now, especially in like fucking science circles, because he's known as like the grandfather of rocketry, um, which which is true. And and he and a lot of his designs and stuff were attributed to like the uh, U.S. success in like the space program, um, and you know the reason why he was a, a 
<laughs> the grandfather of rockets because he first built the rocket technology for the Nazis in the V2 rocket program, um, which were the vengeance rockets, which the Nazis developed at the very end of the war that they basically used to just punish their opponents with no hope of victory, but they just bombed the shit out of London. Um, among other places. And um, so anyway, so the U.S. scooped up uh, Werner von Braun and about almost like 2,000 other scientists and, 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 and technicians and engineers, anybody who had worked in the, um, again, in the Nazis' weapons programs, brought them over. And again, they, you know, like Werner von Braun, he worked on the space race. Um, and, you know, even nowadays still, when people think about the space race, what they think about is like, Oh, either it's this like scientific exploratory mission, or it's um, maybe just you know a prestige thing with the Soviets, like we want to get to the moon first or whatever. But it was also a weapons program, like that was the whole point. It was to design, you know, the 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 point of building giant rockets is so that you can attach nukes to them yeah, and shoot them a- a- around the world. Yeah, um, and, and so most. M- oh, oh so, so, yeah, yeah. Go so, ahead. So, sorry, I, I just wanted to uh, cut in really quick. And don't think that this ever went away because SpaceX right. apparently just gave a whole bunch of rocket information to the DOD. Like, just <laughs> of did. Course. Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, it's all about, like, learning ballistics. By the way, Elon Musk is, like, a Werner Von Braun guy. Yes, he is. You know, he's like, uh, you know, uh, oh, you know, Mr. Braun Braun. I can't even do the accent. It's, 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 like, but, like, <laughs> it's like Kermit the Frog, almost. It's like, yes, and we, um... That's like Jordan. <laughs> it, it appears that when I fled from South Africa in 1994... <laughs> Uh, nothing in particular was happening in South Africa in 1994. I decided, what if the rich got special roller coasters underground to avoid L.A. traffic? <laughs> Sorry. Right, uh, no, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's right. And I mean, this is like the, the um, you know, the point of you're bringing up that, that it hasn't ended, right? Like in the sort of rehabilitation of these people in the United States. And there's like a bigger point, again, about this that I'll, I'll bring up at the end, but like, you know, it continues to this day where it's like it's this kind of attempt to distance politics from from like science, right? And be like, oh, science is this like thing apart of it, and it doesn't really matter, um, you know, uh, who, like who you know who you're working for or something, right? Or like what you're doing. When in reality, like obviously, like that really matters a lot. <laughs> like yes, clearly, these, these were Nazis. <laughs> they were trying to help the Nazis win the fucking war. And the only reason they came over is not out of some sense of like love of. America and Mickey Mouse or whatever, it's because other, it was either like, you know, come and, you know, get a, uh, a plot of land in like fucking New England and <laughs> work on like, uh, uh, fucking US rockets and shit and have a comfortable pension or go up against like an East German firing squad. Like that, that's <laughs> why they fucking did it. Um, oh, and they also got the added benefit of working for the Pentagon and making more money than you and me could even possibly comprehend. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like super... Super rich. I mean, there's tons of examples of the, you know, the Nazis and the fascists being rehabilitated by the United States and, and the West um, in general after after the Cold War. I mean, sorry, after the Second World War, into the Cold War. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the paperclip thing is one of the most notorious ones. And that's sort of the, the idea behind the, the strange love character, right, um, is that, uh, you know, he's this, he's this Nazi come back, basically. Yeah, and this, you know, it's like, oh, man. We probably did that with, like, two or three, but most of the Nazis got punished. Nope. We still, to this day, are finding Nazi guards everywhere. There are, like, nonprofits in Europe that specifically try to seek them out. 
and like force yeah. them to spend i mean they're all like in their 90s now but i mean at least right yeah try to give them some sort of discomfort if not <laughs> cut that but mm-hmm. like the uh they all a lot of them all right yeah yeah cut that please cut that (laughs) i've had like a glass of wine now at this point so (laughs) yes i get prime shano (laughs) uncut uncut based on the findings of the report my conclusion was that this idea was not a practical deterrent for reasons which at this moment must be all too obvious. Then you mean it is possible for them to have built such a thing? Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. You know, cutting back to Jack, and you know, just realizing his, uh, it's General Ripper, his name is Jack Ripper. That's Jack D. Ripper. Jack, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. A little on the nose, yeah. but it, it works. You know what? We, we, we give it to him. This is one of the, like, what, like mm. 10 explicitly leftist movies that exist. And um, yeah, yeah. his lapdog, the guy from the Wes Anderson movie, we find that he's one of these kingdom come types that believes that there's a life after death and realizes that he couldn't handle any sort of actual pressure from fighting. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, he yeah, can yeah. definitely call for the deaths of 100 million people. But if someone puts any sort of real pressure on him, he would shoot mm. himself. And guess what? He does. Um, he absolutely did. Which is a really unfortunate because no one has the code to call off the attack. I am never going to look and see if this is a thing that actually happened. That, like, we really did come this close. We're back on board with our sweet boys on the plane. The guys who are going to nuke the Soviet Union and end the world. And buddy, they just got hit by a missile. Kind of. Uh, it's a really cool bit of filmmaking. Like, you never actually see the missile, because I imagine the special effects weren't cheap back then, and they probably spent all their budget filming the B-52 model, air quotes, in air. But they show the radar with detonation, and it's honestly captivating. It just goes to show you that I'm right about implying violence instead of showing it. Your brain will fill in the gaps and give you something so much more horrible than any filmmaker would be allowed to show Mm -hmm. us. Try it sometime. Make yourself upset, because I know I do. Also, their ability to get get codes is shot. Turns out that Mandrake, you know, Jack the Ripper's lapdog, may have figured out the code to call off the nuclear strike. But a mutiny has happened on the base, and the soldiers there are doing anything they can to stop calling off the nuclear strike. Like, if the world was about to end to nuclear winter, this is how it would go. No one wanting to call off codes, being unable to place a phone call to the president through a payphone because they don't have enough change, and how shooting the Coca-Cola machine means that after this, the acting superior officer on base has to answer to Coke, which is a great summation of U.S. foreign policy, specifically in the Cold War. You know, like, mass death is fine, but endangering private property... Yeah, Bloody. yeah, yeah. That's the line that the guy who's the and the guy who comes there, the the soldiers named Bat Guano. Oh yeah, Bat. Um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and he has that line. He's like, "That's private property. I'm not gonna shoot the Coke machine." Yeah. <laughs> and it's like literally like the fate of like all human life lies in the balance. Is there anything <laughs> more American than that? You know, it's like, oh my god, that person's being attacked over there, and they're like, "I'm no trespasser." You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. God, Colonel, 
That Coca-Cola machine. I want you to shoot the lock off it. There may be some change in there. That's private property. Colonel, can you possibly imagine what is going to happen to you? Okay. I'm going to get your money for you. But if you don't get the President of the United States on that phone, you know what's going to happen to you? What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. The Pentagon gets in the call-off code, you know, and of the 34 planes, four were shot down and 30 have turned around. Or is it three were shot down? Yeah, who cares? Good thing it's only on the way to the doomsday machine. <laughs> mm. uh, but what's really crazy to me is that we get a scene of the U.S. president telling the president of the Soviet Union to send his whole air force there to stop them. And that he's really sorry that they're jamming the radar and flying mm. so low. <laughs> Which <laughs> feels like a pretty accurate summation of the U.S. and Soviet war efforts. <laughs> like, I imagine this stuff happened at the International Theater a ton. And it was all done for show, you know, to convince mm -hmm. the world that there were only two major powers at play. Mm -hmm. And we get a montage of this bomber that's unkillable, apparently. And they're going through every single step that you need to go through to arm the bomb, which is like 50 things you need to do. And all of them are going off flawlessly, except for one, which is that the bomb doors are not opening. So the pilot... The guy with the tactical cowboy hat, the literal appearance and caricature of American yeehaw monkey cowboy attitude towards war, goes underneath and straddles onto the bomb like a bucking bronco. I don't know how else to compare it. He's, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes. I mean, he's like trying to open up the doors and there's all this stuff sparking in his face, but he doesn't care. He's a tough American. There's a, there's another little like r visual gag in here that I really love, um, and it's it's like... This is exactly the kind of, like, hokey, not laugh-at kind of joke that I love. But when he when he's in the b bomb bay uh, of, of the plane, right, like, um, uh, and, and he's on the bombs, we get a shot where we see, like, the two warheads from behind, and they both have, like, you know, that kind of classic bomber graffiti on them. Oh, yeah. I think it's like, hi, John, or, you know, whatever. Like, you know, that the, the, the soldiers themselves have written onto the bombs, but actually printed onto the back of the two bombs, you know, in like a stenciled spray paint, um, you know, presumably by the, the, the military, whoever manufactured the weapons, uh, it says nuclear warhead handle with care. And <laughs> to, to me, that's just like, so good. So I, good. I, I, again, it's, it's not, it's not a, you know, knee slapper. But that's, like, for me, that's the kind of, like, droll comedy where you go, like, oh. Yeah, it's, <laughs> these nukes are that mass-produced that you have to slap yeah. on a, like, the same. Right, yeah, 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 be careful. Yeah, yeah, the, the same exact, like, dipshit uh, warning that you put on, like, a child's piano, you know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Be careful, breaking will be really expensive. Yeah, you can just put it over there. <laughs> you know? It's like it's like those pictures you see of like people who are forklift operators and the forklift falls apart while it's holding a, like a who knows if it's armed or disarmed nuclear warhead. Have you seen those pictures? Right, right, right. Yeah, yes, yes. Oh, those probably make you feel good. <laughs> oh, they're so good. They're so good. All during this scene, we're rapidly approaching the doomsday machine. And then it happens. We finally get it in sight. Then we get maybe the most iconic shot of the movie, and probably one of the most iconic shots of all time, where the cowboy yeah. pilot rides the nuclear bomb down to the supposed doomsday machine before detonating in a silent, bright, white light. Hey, what about Major Kong? <laughs> Major 
this happens, the cope plan begins. I'm sorry for using the word cope. I can't think of a better term and I know how grating <laughs> that is to the ear post-Trump inauguration or uh, non-inauguration. People being like, huh, I bet you're getting your nice dose of copium. This is th- this is me speaking to you, the, the beautiful viewer. Um, stop saying copium. I don't, I don't care who you are. It's not good. Uh, you Copeland Farm also not a good one. Um, Shane, Shane, hit, hit me with some some other Cope ones you've seen. Oh, I I, I was just imagining um uh the, the copium of the masses. Jesus that's, Christ! That's what I was trying. That's what I was trying to work up. Uh, d- uh, don't show me a large rodent called the Copybara. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop before I sag part of my brain. Uh, <laughs> the Joint Chief of Staff, uh, all of them, start talking about how they should all retreat into the mines and live down there for a hundred years. Because the specific type of, like, thorium C, whatever it was, has a radioactive half-life of 93 years. Mind you, uh, Shane, how much do you know about radioactive half-lives? Uh, I mean, just enough to, like, terrify me. Oh, but... good. So a half-life means half of it is gone. Right, so... right. So... It... It's 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 an exponential kind of um you know slow slow growth. Yes, so 93 years being the half-life of it means that the air still won't be breathable after 93 mm. years. It's just there will be half of it in the air. <laughs> right, right, right. And their plan for this is that they could have a computer program to uh specifically this is pitched by Dr. Strangelove, the Nazi scientist, how they could have a computer program select superior genes and the young mm-hmm. attractive people to go into the mines with them where they would have 10 women for every man. And mm-hmm. um this comes to no surprise that there's a fucking Nazi in their ballistics program. This happened? <laughs> I'm going insane. This happened. This was probably a thing a Nazi pitched in the Pentagon. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could oh, all sure. just have 11 down in this mine, <laughs> which doesn't work. The, the population wouldn't get fixed like this. You need like 10,000 people to replace a population because that's how mm. genetics works. You're going to have these horribly malformed people at the end of it. Hap- Habsburg-jawed. Uh, yes, seriously, Habsburg-jawed. Morlocks <laughs> emerging from the mineshaft. The fucking orc, yeah. the uruk High coming <laughs> out of the mines looking for man flesh. <laughs> and knowing that the whole world will be falling apart, the group of men can only think about the ten, men, ten women to one man proposition because mm. this is all that they ever think about. The, the people who get to this mm. level, they don't have any sort of duty. They don't have any sort of like sense of being. They don't want to protect anything. It's all power. And whenever mm. hard power is gone, you move to soft power. And what is soft power? The ability to control people, specifically their bodies. Mm. This is a dream scenario for someone who just ended the human race. 
And it leads to this great bit of fucking satire, which is less satire, more probably a conversation that happened. Because after a hundred years, what if the Soviets start trying to take over their mine shafts? We cannot allow mm. them to have a mine shaft gap. <laughs> then after this, we see Dr. Strangelove declare his love for Hitler, I think. He says, Mein mm. Fuhrer, which isn't a good look. I'd, I'd honestly cancel him. <laughs> and brags that he can walk again. Right after this, you know, or right before this, the Russian ambassador walks away and twists something out of his pocket watch, which um, he was probably the guy who set off the doomsday device, honestly. <laughs> and um, it turns out the real doomsday device was the friends that we made along the way. And uh, <laughs> what scared me is that, like, of this room of 80 people, maybe, uh, literally just one of them could have ended the world. And guess what, buddy? Mm. That happens. Which cuts to, mm. in my opinion, the greatest ending of any film ever made. A mm. montage of nuclear explosions, appropriately synced up to Vera Lynn's We'll Meet Again. And funny enough, uh, what I was telling you before we started recording, this is the song that my wife and I, it was our leaving song for our wedding. And I, oh, that's sweet. It, I was like, I, I was super teary-eyed. It's obviously the greatest day of my life. But on top of yeah. that, a deeply funny thing, because I watched Dr. Strangelove so much before it. <laughs> that I'm just like, any day now, the nukes could go off. <laughs> any day. Man. <laughs> uh. We meet again. Uh, this is um it, it probably is one of the greatest endings just that that hard cut of the you know the nazi scientist because he's been in the wheelchair the whole movie um he, he stands up he can walk and then boom nuclear apocalypse and um I, I was telling you before the uh recording that you know considering like how iconic and wonderful this ending is um it wasn't the originally planned ending for the movie um, and they, and there was a whole other ending that then happened after this that they shot, um, and apparently that footage is now lost, which is probably a good thing. There's like stills and stuff of it you can find online if you look uh, look it up, like production stills. But basically, the original like script had that like after Strangelove stands up, and as you mentioned, the Russian ambassador it, it does in fact seem to be have a, have, have a spy camera. He's taking pictures of the room. Um, Turgidson notices that. Uh, he has it again, and and they and they start fighting, um, and it, it erupts into like a giant food fight. What from the uh, from from the like buffet table that's like shown very briefly, okay. and and it's like a whole pie fight, um, and at one point during the pie fight, uh, somebody hits Merkin Muffley, the president, with a pie in the face, and he falls down. And somebody stands up and he says, "Like you know, our president has been shot down." And they ke- and they keep doing and they keep throwing pies at each other. And then after this c- comedic, you know, Three Stooges gag or whatever, then the apocalypse stuff happens. Um, and one of the reasons that they cut this, the the the, the main one was that Kubrick looked at the footage and was like, "This sucks. Like this is." a horrible way to end this movie. Thank God. Like, um, this is so dumb and goofy 
And, you know, it's like an Austin Powers ending or something. It's, like, totally inappropriate for this film. But um, also, as they were wrapping up this film, Kennedy got killed. Um, and uh, and so they were like, we can't have the line in there that says the president was just shot. Um, and interestingly, there's another line in the movie as well that was censored as a result of this, which is when um, uh, Major Kong, the pilot, is... Uh, uh, they're like, you know, when they're on the plane, he's like listing off like what's in their emergency pack. Yeah, that they're that they're gonna be able to parachute out with, and uh, and it's like an increasingly ridiculous list of items that is in this like survival pack that each of the like, guys on the plane like has. lipstick and pantyhose. It gets to right, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end, it's like you know, lipstick, pantyhose, and he goes like, shoot, a fellow could have a real good time in Vegas with all that stuff. Yeah, the original line was Dallas. Huh. It was like a, a fellow could have a, a good time in Dallas with all that stuff. Huh. And you can tell they they dubbed it over his thing. They, like, they didn't reshoot it. And so it's like the one – I remember when I first saw it, probably when I was like a teenager or something, I was like, that's weird because it's like a close-up shot of his mouth and you can tell that they dubbed over it. Um, but, yeah, the reason why it was is because the Kennedy assassination had just happened and they didn't want to um, – you know, offend the sensibilities or whatever. One miniature combination, Russian phrase book and Bible. $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. Or insinuate that Stanley Kubrick was such a perfectionist that he... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, <laughs> Imagining oh, Kubrick. Man. Kennedy was going to let loose that he filmed the moon landing. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, oh, yeah. that's Dr. Strangelove, or how I learned mm. to stop worrying and love the bomb. Speaking of games, by the way, there was another one I wanted to throw out there uh, Defcon. Oh. Which is a, uh, a it's a, it's a uh, strategy game. It's 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 fun and it's and it's usually pretty cheap if you get it uh, like on Steam or whatever. It's only a couple dollars, um, but it's a it's a game where you play basically uh, uh, nukes against each other. Oh, and, how cool! Uh, um, and the uh, and the whole like kind of point of the game, the like the music and everything is very dreary. And it, and it's like a, the map for the game looks like the fucking Doctor Strange love map. And the whole point is to just um, have like a, a smaller amount. Um, uh, or, you know, like, a, a slightly larger infinitesimal percentage of your population survive at the Jesus end. Because inevitably everybody dies. But if you survive with, like, you know, 10,000 people left, you win. Um, <laughs> so that's a fun one. Maybe you, me and you could play sometime. But um, I wanted to make uh, one quick point, if I can. Oh, uh, do it. The floor about, about, um, about Strangelove. Uh, uh, because, like, you know, as we've been talking about, like, obviously the, you know, the movie is primarily about is... You know, the Cold War, nuclear weapons, the whole theory of mad, you know, mutually assured destruction and sort of the extreme logic that can come out of that and how that whole kind of concept of deterrence can actually lead to destruction itself. Um, and so that's like, you know, the obvious like, you know, text of the movie. Um, but on a subtext level, like when you think about like, why is this movie called Dr. Strangelove? when Strangelove doesn't show up until, like, almost an hour into the movie. And it's not, like, a long movie or anything, either. And and he only ha- that character only has, like, like seven minutes of screen time or something. Barely anything, yeah. Um, why, why is the movie called Dr. Strangelove? Um, my, my feeling about it, my argument about it, is that the, the subtext of the film is that it's also about, like, fascism. 
and Nazism. And, and you know, we talked about, like, Operation Paperclip and how the United States, like, brought um, and rehabilitated these, like, Nazi scientists and stuff, and that's who the character of Strangelove is based on. And there's, like, kind of two points out of that, right, that you can take. Like, the first one... Uh, which is, like, the kind of more obvious one is, like, you know, the, the, the deep cynicism and hypocrisy of the United States government and war machine, which, like, ostensibly is anti-Nazi, anti-fascist for democracy or whatever, but at the same time recruited these guys, you know, supported, like, right-wing regimes all over the place during the Cold War um, and, you know, were fundamentally, like, anti-democratic. And, like, you know, again, full of hypocrisy for rehabilitating these awful war criminals. That's the first thing. But on a deeper level, I think what um, what the film points to is the idea that fascism, at its most basic, is driven by a mobilizing passion of like war and violence, ultimately a suicidal one, like a self-destructive, uh, you know, like psychosexual uh, death drive, right? To just destroy and then inevitably kill yourself. And so the Cold War, although it was a battle between capitalism and communism, is you know, in the context of this film, is refracted through the lens of their common enemy, who is the Nazis. And, uh, you know, even Hitler had said that, this is a quote that's attributed to him quite a lot, where he said something along the lines of, like, the great victory of the totalitarian state is that it forces its enemies to adopt its methods. The idea being that the conditions of total war force a certain kind of logic onto the ruling elite that then eventually trends towards brutality. And so we can see that with, you know, during the Second World War, with the Allied bombing of civilian populations, culminating ultimately in the development and use of the atomic bomb on a civilian population. And uh, the Cold War threat, then, of mutually assured destruction between the two powers, which is the backdrop to the entire film, is just a further extension of this, of this logic, this, this drive towards um, uh, violence and, and, you know, like, a genocidal violence. And it, and it shows that both the Americans and the Soviets have adopted the kind of internal logic of what was their former enemy. And so as long as this conflict persists, fascism will still be with us. It will haunt us. It will drive us. And that's why the character of Strangelove doesn't show up until the doomsday scenario is already underway. And then when he is introduced, he's in the background or he's in shadow. Like, every time you see him, he's always, like, literally emerging from the shadow. Um, he's the specter of fascism. He's always, like, lurking oh, in the background. Shit. And the scenario of apocalypse is the thing that gives him the opportunity to reemerge. And in his very last scene, which is the last scene of the movie, to imprint, then, the other weird ideas of the Nazis. Like you were saying, like, the whole, like, breeding, selective, genetic thing, right? It's, like, pure, like, Nazi social Darwinist shit. Um, and then, you know, concurrent to that and wrapped up in all this is like, um, the, uh, the, the, the death drive, right, has this psychosexual element to it, right? And it's so present in the film, both with like the names of the characters, you know, like a name like Turgidson, um, the fact that it's like, it's pretty much all men. There's like one woman in the movie who's like Turgidson squeeze. And I think that's very intentional, although you can make the argument that like the movie doesn't pass the Bechtel test or whatever but like the yeah. point is that, like you know that it's all it's all these like sexually obsessed men right um and that even goes to the very opening of the film as you pointed out which is like this actual footage of two planes refueling midair it's like a penetrative sexual oh, absolutely. thing absolutely right like you know the fuel injector and it's and, it, and it's done to that like you know that music um and then of course obviously the guy of uh you know ripper with his obsession with fluids and the, the sexual connection there um the last little tangential thing with that is uh, 
there's a really great book by this German sociologist named Klaus Thevelwhite, who's like totally insane. Um, Bring it <laughs> and on. It's called Male, Male Fantasies. Um, and it's like, it's really one of the most insane books I've ever read. Um, it's very dense and weird and meandering. But there's this one section in it. Um, he's, he wrote this book in like the 70s. And uh, he, he did a study of Freikor uh, novels in Germany in the 1920s. And the Freikor were like the proto-Nazi paramilitary guys. And so there, it was like a popular genre at the time for there to be these like sort of dime, you know, uh, popular novels written about these guys. Imagine like a cowboy type archetype, right? Okay. Like the Freikor guy, you know, he's, he's like a heroic figure. Um, and in all of these novels, or at least in the ones that this guy's surveying, he notes that, like, the Freikor who, guy, who is, again, you know, like, uber right-wing proto-fascist, right? The end of all of these novels result in the Freikor guy standing alone against a horde of uh, reds, you know, like uh, communists, and the reds are always coded as feminine and as fluid, and so it's always, like, waves of red, the red tide, the red washes over, you know, the red, the blood. And as the wave comes at him, he, like, fires as many bullets as he can into the wave. And then right before they, like, touch him and get inside of his body, essentially, he kills himself. And that's, like, the hero of the story, right? And so, like, well, what, what does this mean and why, why am I bringing it up, right? It's this, like, fear and panic about the fluid, the blood, like, getting into you, wrapped into this whole sexual identity thing of like you know men being afraid of women and then if you look at like the second world war how did that end with the you know the the nazi the head nazi literally blowing his brains out before the reds could wash over him and it's the same shit that happens in in strange love right it's a suicidal death drive um to prevent you know the communists from taking over our fluids to prevent them from like getting inside of our body um and it's the same it's a, it's a you know it's a similar again to that fascist logic and i think that's why um you know that 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 ends up being the the that character that nazi character is the name of the film and then his name as well is strange love right it's a it's a sexual thing yeah um it's like a weird kink um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, th th there's I... a reason we call it getting that strange. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, sorry. Yeah, it's no, no. It's uh, I mean, again, it's just um, it's so good. It's such a good movie. I, I, I love it. As you can tell, I could fucking. We've already done what an hour and a half on this. I could do f seven hours. Can't just blame going, you. Oh man, how cool! How cool was that scene? Oh man, Shane, I want to thank you for coming on and talking Dr. Strangelove with me. Uh, I of was course. super interested in the historical, uh, what would you even, I don't want to call it source material because it's, it's actual like historical, like things that happen. Mm. They're facts that happen that mm. they claimed as satire. And um, I just want to thank you for coming on. And I want to say, oh, of course, listen to Shane's podcast. I'm pretty sure every single one of my listeners listen to it anyways, but Shane is a, oh. uh, one of the hosts of Eat the Rich podcast, I uh, gas Dwight up, so now I get to gas you up. Literally my favorite <laughs> podcast, probably my favorite podcast oh, of all you. time. Thank you, man. I mean That's that very nice. seriously, it is the only podcast that I sit around and wait for it to come out and listen to it as oh. soon as it is out. It is a fantastic podcast. Subscribe to their Patreon. The Patreon episodes are just as good as the free ones. And um, support people actually platforming leftist ideas and not kind of um, pretending to be them. 
<laughs> for online clout. <laughs> I I appreciate that, man. I I, I do a lot. I want I want to say too. I'm you know I'm a fan of your show, and I, I really I'm appreciative that we were able to um, you know, finally uh uh d- do this episode. We've been talking about it for a while, and um, literally you know, since the show started. And, I, I've like yeah, I've it was, it was wanted you ago, on. Yeah. I wanted you on. I wanted Lloyd on, and I wanted Dwight on. Really, really bad. That's finally happened. <laughs> I still want Chris on. Chris, come on my fucking podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bug him. I'll bug him on the next one. Hell yeah. I want. Hey, um, I want to talk about Borat as a uh, cultural <laughs> phenomenon <laughs> with, with Chris because there's no Chris is better than any published anthropologist. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. That's right. That's right. That's right. I um. Uh, I, I had two quick things before we go. I just wanted to um to uh to drop here, and I'll 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 send this to you. I don't know if you've took a look at this, but I brought this up on my, the the episode I did um over the summer about uh, uh nuclear bombs on the uh, Eat the Rich show. Um, but there's this great site, uh, this nuke nuke map. Okay. I don't know if you've ever used this tool. I'm not. Um, but it's a uh, it's this uh thing this guy put together where you can basically it it, it takes like data from Google Earth. Um. Google Maps, and then uh, it has a little like a uh, widget tool where you can uh, detonate nuclear bombs. And what see the what fuck? The various no way. And stuff of them. Yeah, yeah. So like, because uh, I know you know we were talking about um, where we're from, uh, you know, earlier, and like I've you know, Carrie being from Florida, we we dropped a couple in Florida just to see what what the effects would be, and it can give you a sense. And and it has you know um, kilotons and megatons, and it has a bunch of like preloaded things, and like you could see like if they dropped the SAR bomb on my house, Holy what would that look like? Shit. How big would the fireball be, and what would the estimated casualties be? Um, Do you so immediately little... get put on a list if you, uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if you just keep, if you just. <laughs> I mean, probably, um, I don't know about that, but, um, but yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun little tool. And I always like, uh, recommending that to people again, if you want to get a real sense, cause you watch, you watch the footage of nuclear test stuff or at the end of strange love, you know, they have, um, you know, a bunch of the bombs exploding, but then I, you actually put it into reference to where you, where you're from and the area you understand, you really get a sense of the scale of it. Like, Oh, a single one of these weapons would destroy like everything I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And um, it's important to look at things like this. These aren't war toys. Mm-hmm. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't just something that happens in movies. Two of these were dropped on innocent civilians, right? And we exactly. we need to know the destructive capability. I'm going to be throwing this link in the podcast episode information. Oh, great! great Seriously, great. it's it's, it's thematically appropriate. Um, yeah, so I wanted I wanted to, to to share that with you and the listeners, and also um to say you know uh, not to jump the gun or whatever, but I would be really excited if some point in the future we could do a a follow up to this. Um, on you know a film that I think is in the same tradition of Doctor Strange Love, which is um, uh, Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I will have you on to do the first Marvel movie I've ever covered, or I've ever. Covered. I don't think I remember anything from the Doctor Strange movie. What a so. deeply fucking boring movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The, My wife know, put it but, on uh, because she read this like article that was like you know like the top sci-fi movies of the decade, uh, and Doctor Strange was like number two or three on the list. And she put it on, yeah. and I was like, "Why are you watching this?" And she was like, "You're always so quick to dismiss uh, Marvel movies." And then she gets like ten minutes into it, she's like, "This is the most boring shit I've ever." <laughs> like i told you there is one good marvel movie there's one and i mean it sincerely yeah. that first iron man 
That is a oh, genuinely thought, I, good movie. I was gonna say Blade. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the original yeah. Blade movie. That movie fucking movie slaps, kicks dude. ass. You know what? <laughs> I'm just gonna be thinking of that as we fade out to the only way you could fade out to a Doctor Strange live episode, which is mm. Vera Lynn's "We'll Meet Again." Oh.